3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast here on uh, 3CR Community Radio. I'm Will, and I'm here in the studio today with... Hi, Edwin. Good morning. Good morning. And... Dean. Good morning, Wednesday Breakfast. <laughs> Good morning, Good morning everyone. Dean. Yeah, um, so Dean's voice you may recognise from Thursday Breakfast in the little past. I think he's been away for a bit. Come back. Yep. And we're happy to have him on the Wednesday team. So yes, wonderful to have you us. on the Wednesday team. Uh, I've been overseas. I've been to... Oh. Tassie. It's fantastic. Oh, that nice. stretch of water is... Uh, do you speak Tasmanian? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, cool. okay. uh, those mainlanders, right silly right. mainlanders, us <laughs> islanders down here, I love our wood. Oh, no. Beautiful, beautiful nice. state. Mm. Uh, beautiful country, sorry. Beautiful. <laughs> Got to get, get down there at some point. Um, so what was your, your favourite thing? I was there for Dark Mofo. Dark Mofo? Yeah. No way. Yeah, well, wait, I was wait. there for... Sorry, sorry. Sorry, I don't I know what this for, dark... I was there for work, but I got to see Dark Mofo. Oh, yeah. okay. What is this Dark Mofo of which you speak? It's, um, it's a, I guess it's a really a, a, what you would call a very, very dark sort of art collaboration with, with artists. So you had Tim Minchin performing two nights down oh. there, mm. and then you had bands, but it was also... Um, there was a, a street artist who buried himself in the middle of the street. Uh, so the theme this year was uh, was something like dark but not, not suppressed. And he was making a point about how we, um, indigenous culture, is being suppressed. And mm. so he buried himself in the street for, for two days. Right. Food and water, wow. okay. saying that okay. we're pushing down the indigenous population and right. not okay. giving them a voice by coming up with things such as um, you know, close the gap campaigns, which have been really, really right. inactive. Yeah, yeah, it was quite. Yeah. It's very, very morbid, but it's yeah. very, very, very good. It gets but across. Yeah, no, it's provoking. Yeah, yeah. A very, very strong, strong message yeah. that um, he's literally burying himself in the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's not much to case. interpret there. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. um, but it, yeah, like you know, a lot of religious people were quite offended by the fact that he was using crosses and using that sort of mantra of, of said of saying, well. You know, Jesus rose in three days, and oh, I think right, we can do right. that. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite intense down there. But a bit controversial. Right. Yeah, but okay. um, that's the beauty of Tasmania. You can, you can be controversial, and you can yeah. have. Yeah, there's a strong art community down there. I Very believe. strong. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to joining Wednesday yeah. breakfast. I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting into alternative news, which we haven't done for a while. Well, no, we haven't done that for a while. I just want to, um, for just in relation to that um, artist burying himself in the street, if folks at home want to read a bit about the church and how it suppressed Aboriginal people, um, you should read The False Claims of um, Colonial Thieves um, by Charmaine Paperdolt Green and another poet um, that she collaborated on. We had um, Charmaine as a guest on Monday Breakfast, back when I was on that show, and um, it's a fantastic book. I think you can actually get it in most... Um, most bookstores, The False Claims of Colonial Thieves. I'll double-check the title for that later, but um, mm. great book of poetry. Anyway, so um, we were going to talk about what's coming up in the show. Yes, yeah. what's coming up in the show. So we've got a, oh, an interesting show coming up, a bit of a mix. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, we're going to do a lot of alternative news, I think, throughout yes. the program. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, international treaties today. 
Yeah. As well as a uh, one of my favorite songs for songs of satire. So I'm going to go <laughs> to the uh, memeing it up with Smash Mouth. Oh, um, Smash Mouth. Oh, Smash Mouth. Right. There's so much to talk about, isn't There's there? There's so much to talk about, yeah. So much gel. Um, I believe you've got an interview, Will. Yes. Uh, later in the day, oh, sorry, not later in the day, but around 7.35, we're going to be speaking to April Bragg, who is the manager of client services at Housing Aged Action Group. Now, at the beginning of the month, the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement, which is a funding plan um, between the federal government and the state governments, was enacted. Um, and uh, we're just going to see if it's real, if that represents real change or whether it's more of the same. And um, hopefully the Housing Age Action Group will have something to say about that. So that's, um, that's coming up at 7.35. Yeah. Um, otherwise, throughout the show, we're going to be um, playing all sorts of great stories that have come through the pipe in the, the week. Um, yeah, so we have some yesterday. content from In Your Face, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit of that. But also mm. um, Jeanne Bartlett will speak to Nasser Machini of APAN and Palestine, remembering um, Saturday the 9th of, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so that'll be in relation to the new nation state law, which um, mm. sets aside a unique right for Jewish Israelis to self-determination in Israel. And so that's, um, as you can imagine, quite controversial. So it'll be great yeah. to hear about that. Um, but and then, yeah, after I think after yes. around 8.10, we'll um, just hear Joel um, talking to us uh, from Transforming Stories. It was just a... A series that was run by uh, Brainwaves, which is on 3CR on Wednesdays at 5pm as part of their mental health series. Yeah. Fantastic. So it's a it's a big show full of a lot of different stories. Um, Bustling show. Um, <laughs> but let's hit it up first with alternative news. That's right. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Right now we're launching into Alternative News, which is a segment. Um, well, we call it a segment, but we kind of pepper it throughout the entire show, don't we? Mm, but we this do. is our, the main bulk of it where we talk about stories which either aren't in the mainstream media or are but have been presented in a way that we think is worth analysing. Yeah. So um, first off, I wanted to speak about Celeste Little, who is a fantastic um, activist and writer, um, Indigenous w- woman, um, who wrote an article for Eureka Street um, online, and the article is titled African Gang Beat Up Plays Us All for Mugs, and she talks um, fairly generally in the way in which the recent spate of um, racist and divisive rhetoric from the Australian government um, against um, Africans in Australia and African-Australians um, is used to divide society and sort of divide and conquer, essentially, and she points out, um, uh, Celeste points out an example from from the increased Afro-Caribbean Im- immigration that happened in the UK. So this is, I think, back in the 60s and 70s. So in the early 70s, 
um, news coverage in the UK was dedicated to mugging. And it was never explicitly said, but there was, well actually no, I don't, I can't say that it was never explicitly said because I was never around, but the, but the implication was that mugging is a crime to be connected to a racialized, um, group of people, in this case the Afro-Caribbean new immigrants. And, um, so that's a, that's a fairly recent example of a, um, a sort of colonial state, an Anglo state, um, imposing its will upon brown bodies, and I think that's, um, just, just a, illustrative that we can sort of see the exact same thing happening today um it started back in sort of i mean there's always been racism directed to the african community here in australia mm. but um this recent spate am i right in saying that it sort of started around january i think oh, it's with definitely comments? it's definitely a vehicle on our upcoming election mm. it's, mm. it's it's kind of yeah. an artificial fear of something you know that they've gone right we need an enemy mm. public enemy number one and it's completely artificial and constructed yeah yeah and so um uh Celeste Little's article um, gives a gives a really good comp- comprehensive view from an from an indigenous view as well. Mm. Um, she makes the point that um, you know all of these sort of waves of hatred to new immig- to new sort of demographics of immigrants coming from various regions around the world are um, sort of a, a bit strange to link them to crime when they you know when Asian Australians when um, African Australians aren't the ones who came and enacted a camp, a sort of mass campaign of genocide in this mm. country. So it's sort of it's it's worth ta- taking a step back and having some perspective on, you know, who exactly is perpetuating a lot of crime in this country. Yeah, and what yeah. what crime actually is. And just looking yeah. at the crime statistics, I think plastered mm. all over it is the fact that crime has actually dropped. Mm. So there's this, this Especially this, in Melbourne, I think. Yeah. That's that's where a lot of the talk has been happening in Melbourne yeah. here. So this mm. rise of criminal yeah. gangs who are, you know, rise in criminal activity, mm. completely false. Mm. And, and I think mm. that if you, yeah, if you look at the crime statistics, there's actually more crimes being committed by, in, in, in inverted commas, European Australians, yeah. mm. very mm. broad term, very broad yeah. compared yeah. to African Australians. And, and mm. I think yeah. you mentioned... The drive is, it's mm. quite political. I mean, for, for someone like Peter Dutton to come out two days ago and, and say that, you know, we're burying our heads in the sand down here in Victoria, yeah. um, we don't have these problems with Sudanese, this is what he was quoting mm. saying, with Sudanese gangs Christ. in New South Wales or Queensland, I would say that most of those people from the Horn of Africa might not necessarily mm. associate themselves with being Sudanese, but he's mm. just sort of put this one cultural group yeah. and put yeah. them in there like that. Um, and I think there was a Liberal MP, uh, Jason Woods, um, who said, you know, African gangs are not being used as an election issue. Mm. But yeah. it seems like yeah. that's what's been in the media for the last sort of, yeah. well, since January, essentially. But yeah. we know that the Flemington Legal Centre and Victoria Police were trying to get on the front foot mm. over the last two years to try and maybe educate police officers mm. about different cultures, mm. but also to try and unite the two groups, mm. uh, you know, so that they can work together and, and work out a solution as to the, the mm. profiling and how to eliminate those things as well. Yeah. Well, we were mentioning too, it's the n- fact that they need to they, they need to include the Sudanese part of it. I mean, if a criminal activity has been done, it doesn't matter who's committed the crime, <laughs> yeah. right? But media loves to do the thing where it goes, this yeah. man or this woman or mm. this nationality, and it attach kind of not relevant details mm. to the crime. It's a criminal activity. It's not about yeah. the background per In se. In Celeste Little's article, um, she makes a point of saying that, you know, that there are... A, a small subset of people um, from the sort of 
generally East African community mm. who are involved in crime, but they also share other things, like yeah. being from situations of um, low income or poverty, yeah. from mm. poor health backgrounds, from um, tra- particularly traumatic refugee backgrounds as well. Yeah. And these aren't things that are being particularly um, addressed by um, by state or federal governments no. um, in a way mm. that seem to have any real effect. So, you get the generalisation without yeah. the actual context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if they're, they're generalising based on race as opposed to generalising yeah. based on any other thing that they could choose. The and so that's very telling. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. then I think the media, uh, or in general, the reason they don't do that is because mm. they, they, they want to perpetuate the idea that, well, once you come here, mm. you're mind so to speak should be clear and free of anything that might have happened in the past and then you know it's like well it's not our responsibility to get you mentally stable to be able to live in society and australia has a lovely history of not providing that sort of social infrastructure for migrant populations i Mm. mean the fact that we don't have services for people coming into australia Mm. to you know go hey you're part of australia let's you know help you kind of acclimatize this very different culture Mm. none of that and and it was it was interesting uh, well sorry I hate using that word interesting. Oh, we were going to speak to the ECCV chairperson who we'll have next week, mm. and it was about um, interpretation services and then funding Victoria, going yeah. into yeah. that. So, so ECCV stands for Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria. Council yeah, of so Victoria. if you think about the Greek migrants mm. and, and, you know, the European migrants who came in the 60s to help build mm. the Snowy River um, and, and, and obviously build this, this country, mm. For them to still be fighting for mm. funding for interpretations, because yeah. there's some elderly yeah. Italian women who still don't speak English mm. properly mm. or mm. don't have, the, yeah. you know, the, they yeah. didn't need to because they had communities. Mm. But to get to 2018 and they're still fighting for funding to be able to get interpretive services to access health services mm. And, mm. and, you know, access um, yeah. services, it's just, yeah, it's, it's yeah. quite weird to think yeah. they've come along for so long. And we're looking forward to hearing more about that next week. Is yeah. That right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, before we moved on to a, a, the, our next story, I just wanted to point out that The Guardian's been doing some pretty good um, reportage around the rise. Um, there's an article, Rise in Reported Racial Incidents Linked to Sensationalized African Gangs Coverage, and that's the Victoria's Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Con- Commissioner who notes a rise in racist attacks against Africans right. and African Australians in the wake of um, comments by people like the Prime Minister yeah. and by Peter Dutton um, sort of um, claiming that there's a link between being African or being of African descent and committing crimes, which is yeah, yeah. And, and and people like Dutton <laughs> saying yeah. that you know we can't even admit that Sudanese gangs exist uh, is quite yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, but I think what's also changed is the reporting. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know, like every news now when I hear about a crime, mm. they try and, and 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 balance it out by saying, oh. Um, the offender was being reported as Caucasian, mm. <laughs> which never yeah. used to happen before. Yeah. But really all of a sudden, it's yeah. like, okay, let's just throw that in just let's so just that it seems them. like yeah. it's balanced, you mm. know. That's interesting, yeah. but maybe that'll lead to greater awareness of, of well, Caucasian crime. Well, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, we realise that crime's committed across the board. Yeah. 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 And, it, and, yeah. and we all know that it is. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. Anyway, did we have something else for alternative news before we moved on? I, was, I found it quite interesting um, that... Um, we have the former Victorian Premier, Jeff Kennett, who has vowed to fix the taxi industry. Uh-huh. This has been going on. The taxi on. industry? The taxi industry. What's going to do? Um, well, he, you know, he 
In June, uh, the Victorian Ombudsman found that the state government had botched its handling of a $50 million fairness fund with some financially stricken taxi licence owners um, waiting months before they were told that they were ineligible to get some of that money. Mm. You know, we hear that taxi licences had gone from half a million dollars with the introduction of rideshare ser- services to something like 80000 Some Some people had lost their life's work and their life savings. So... Um, he, he has criticised Victorian government scheme to buy back the taxi licences and what he plans to do is, um, you know, some of his key ideas is to be able to make sure that the taxi services are affordable, mm. easy, identifiable and safe. Uh, and I guess including tough English language tests. Huh. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, okay, okay, okay. okay. Mm. Right. right. So... Okay. Well, I mean, I hope that comes with tough English language training offered to taxi drivers as well, because otherwise we're going to see a massive chop in the number of taxi drivers. Yeah, mm. so you, you, you know, I like the idea that you're putting this plan together to fix mm. it, but when you start talking about tough English tests and no, things like that, that gets mm. it then becomes scary. We're mm. reducing the number of the taxis available, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Which is a generalisation in itself, but yeah. Yeah. Um, even. Uber drivers, essentially, or even other ride-sharing services, they'll sort of go down if you're spreading mm. it across the whole spectrum of it. Yeah. Um, but the taxi industry's had issues since um, they've sort of started changing its formation over the last five years. I know we did a few interviews, and it's a massive, massive struggle for people who had those licences, how they're going to mm. keep going, feeding their family. Um, but, yeah, so mm. uh, Mr Guy said... Uh, in a statement that Victoria is fortunate to be able to call upon Mr. Kennett's experience yet again. Mm. And I think the main thing with Mr. Kennett is that he has taken this role, he was saying, because of the high rates of suicide attempts. Ah, right, because he's part of Beyond Blue, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So his main thing is that, you know, he's been talking about how a lot of these um, taxi licence owners are in a situation where a few of them have attempted self-harm and that's not really, really good. No, because it's a highly stressful job and... Highly stressful demands. Yeah, and mm. I guess it's highly stressful to know that you're losing something for some people that you've worked so hard yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and if you are experiencing any, um, you know, health um, issues, you can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four, and you can also get in contact with Beyond Blue as well. Wonderful. One three one 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 four. You're listening to Three CR Community Radio. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR.
And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. The day is the 25th of July. I don't know if we mentioned that before. And, Ooh. Will, you said it was actually going to be sunny today, didn't you? Well, um, I said it was going to be sunny, but, you know... <laughs> you know. And it's meant no. to be 16 too. But, and at the moment know. it is very uh, dark and cold. And yeah. Well, I mean, it, at the moment it is quite early. Well, I mean, quite early in mm. the day. Um, <laughs> but we're getting up to 15 is what um, the Bureau of Meteorology is saying. Wonderful. Uh, top of 15 and it's going to be slight, partly cloudy with a very slight 20% chance of a light shower during the afternoon. And it's only winds. Everyone may be happy to know, given the, the wild and woolly kind of weather <laughs> oh, we've yeah. been having recently, but it's only going to go up to around 20 kilometres an hour. Mm. To give you an idea, we've been having like 50 oh, k goodness. an hour, kind of yeah. 40, 45, 50 yeah. k an hour winds, and um, that's what snapped a tree in half in my backyard. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's practically summer today. <laughs> practically <laughs> summer. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what are we listening to next? Yeah, so we're going to go into Songs of Satire. Ooh. And as I said, this week we've got a treat with Smash Mouth classic Walking on the Sun, which is all about kind of the um, bastardization of movements by transferring them into fashion statements. So, now a quick preface. I always thought Walking on the Sun was a metaphor for climate change. I always thought, you know, heated up planet, Walking on the Sun. But research says that the lead writer, Greg Camp, who's the guitarist of the group, said that the song was more a racial battle cry of the era. So kind of this question of why can't we get along? So Walking on the Sun is a protest of kind of more mutually assured destruction than, um, than what I thought. But then again, it is open to interpretation. So, you know, whatever you want to think about. But instead, the song really does support uh, the movement of world harmony and protests against this world conflict. Now, this is a noble message, world harmony. However, it's deliberately presented in an ignoble way, and it's all about the stylization of the song that communicates the song's message. So, it's really packaged as an infomercial, a mock infomercial, as Smash Mouth kind of adopts the suit of the businessman and starts the song trying to peddle this impossible product, world harmony, world peace. The line, I'd like to teach the, world in, uh, teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, is actually a s- complete reference of the 1917 artist Melanie's song. Um, and you might know Melanie from other protest songs, such as Look What They've Done to My Song, Ma, which is quite a big, was quite big in the hippie movement. So, in opposition to this product of world harmony is a world on fire and one of conflict and corruption, which Smash Mouth seeks to personally snuff out. It builds this prologue to the song through this idealistic world and this miracle product that we should all buy into and fall in love with. And we do fall in love with it. We get hit with a love attack, and our initial interest turns into obsession and romanticization of the movement of the moment. And the more we romanticize it, the more we kind of move away from it. And this is the trend that Smash Mouth really highlights, because we make the movement into a product rather than a concept. So it becomes something to be consumed and tossed away. It becomes fashion. Uh, the commercialization of the movement means that consumers kind of actively conform while mentality takes over, and we go along with it, not because we particularly care, understand, or empathize with the movement, but because it's so mainstream and so popular, we buy into it because it's what everyone else has, and it's, you know, staying in this clique. And they use a case study to actually prove this. In the 1970s, Smash Mouth... Uh, they, they, they talk about the 1970s, and Smash Mouth supports this idea by quoting the hippie movement of the 1970s and then poking fun at the defiled original values. So the protests against uh, the emergence of neoliberalism, Cold War madness, civil rights movements, uh, anti-war movements, second-wave feminism, these are all protests that are then warped into fashion. Um, Smash Mouth suggests that the singing and clapping of the original protest songs, thank you, Bob Dylan to Joan Baez, um, is, good, is a good spark to a movement, but ultimately it... It kind of fizzles out when action isn't really sustained after it. 
So he becomes spellbound in ideology, and that means that protests are really short-lived and violent and intense while they go, but then the cause is lost as kind of intergenerational children of the protesters become more obsessed with the fashion and being a hippie chick. And this is this kind of this, this hypocritical attitude we adopt because we then support a cause without, sorry, we symbolise a cause without actually supporting it. So it's this utter superficiality. And to really drive home this hypocrisy through the chorus, the infomercial of Smash Mouth becomes really obvious. Smash Mouth uses an actual jingle um, to push to its audiences to don't delay, supplies are running out, like the adverts we hear on TV. And they suggest that world harmony becomes kind of this increasingly impossible goal to achieve. So prompting audiences that you have to act now so there might actually be a tomorrow. And they're deadly serious, but it's a ridiculous way that they present it. And with this, the, the main singer really just ramps up the melodrama like a normal advert, stating that without action, you know, babies' lives will be revoked, mothers will be left crying. He kind of rips into every staple of security you've ever had and says, look, you have to buy into world peace, trying to convince us as an audience. If the offer's shun, of course, you'll be walking on the sun, the main point. Um, and lead, the lead singer, Steve Hadwell, or the chef, kind of uses this shouty man persona, which you'll hear in the song, to kind of call you to arms and tells you not to be passive and kind of watch the world get bushwhacked, but to be engaged with the global community, to empathise with the plight of those all over the world, and to help kind of seal the crack in the world before conflict consumes everything. He employs one last stab at pathos with this mentioning of doing this for future children and being able to share the world with them rather than leaving it cracked up, broken husk. And this is where it gets really clever. This is my concluding point. Because Smash Mouth delivers this entire message wrapped up in completely dramatic irony. As well as his intentions, the lyrics, uh, the spice of global movement towards world, world peace, they require action to be an actual recipe. And he literally undermines this message through his use of pop. So contained in a pop song, the critical lyrics are somewhat drowned out by the infomercial stylization. So he shows how a movement through its vehicle-like or through its presentation, can then be warped into a fashion statement. With the opening lines um, saying, I want to buy a world of toke, he literally references the 1971 I want to buy the world of coke advertising scheme. And there it is again, the intent lost within the mainstreaming of a product or a concept turning into a product. I mean, the song is such a parody and it's a critique on human behaviour tending to commercialise movements and then bang, the song deliberately mimics this trend and parades it itself. So, like any pop scene, it bursts onto the scene and then retracts for some other, newer, better pop scene without the song, without actually having an impact. And it shows this process of bastardisation to forewarn audiences of what we do as a culture. So, to conclude, let's just circle back to Melanie with Look What They've Done to My Song Ma, a song all about the misinterpretation of thoughtful lyrics through commercialisation. And then look at Smash Mouth having done it to their own message on purpose to highlight our own hypocrisy. It's a fantastic satire, and I hope you enjoy it. Here it is now in full. Oh, 
good you've been so With the tears because the baby's life has been revoked The bond is broke, got so choked up and full Kiss on the clothes, I miss our wheels, I can't reform No God, I go get spoken, so don't sit back, kick back And watch the world get bushwhacked Hello, this is Archie Roach and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. And this is Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We were just listening to Smash Mouth's Walking on the Sun as part of our... uh, Songs of Satire. Songs of Satire segment. And... um, I can't listen to Smash Mouth without thinking of all of the many, many memes. The many, many memes coming yes. out, um, sort of based around their their music. Especially about a year ago, I think it was quite big that um, people would ago. take um, songs, specifically All Star, another one of their songs, which featured in um, yeah. in the first Shrek movie. Yeah. Um, and people would remix that, and I, I just remember things like. Um, Sort of editing the video so that every every time they said the word "star" in the song "All Star," <laughs> the video would get it would get faster, yep. or would, or they'd replace that word with like Gordon Ramsay insults. Look, I think everyone loves Shrek. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you don't okay. love Shrek, there's something a little bit strange about you. Or but, you've got kids and you've had to watch it too you, many times. That's very yeah. true. But I think uh, Shrek Shrek got popular again last year and then Smash yeah. Mouth All Star is yeah. championed in that movie. Can we talk so. very briefly about meme culture? Just the yeah, I, just the way in which I just find it really fascinating that there's sort of this huge body of creative work out there. Mm. Um, and I'm certain that someone out there in some sort of university's dark corner is studying them. But they it just doesn't seem like it's a it's a I d I don't know. Like it's it's got so much art and knowledge in there that well, I tell you what, doesn't seem to equal like meme mainstream culture, music yeah. or whatever. Meme yeah. culture is actually mm. one of my favorite things about my generation yeah. because what my generation uh, does with their memes mm. is they take pain mm. and then they make them into something comical. <laughs> Very definitely, uh, everyone beautiful. can relate. Piece of comedy. Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. What's yes. what's a meme? Ah, a meme. Like in this specific context, Ooh, okay. meme has a lot of different meanings. Very true, very yeah. true. But in this one, it's like kind of it's the remixing and mashup of popular culture and commercial culture yeah. in a way. 
Yeah. Um, so in some ways you're going along with commercial messaging in terms of pop music or, or something film. That, something that's easily recognisable. Mm, but at the same time you're subverting it you're by subverting it using this message. commercial medium for your own yeah. yeah, for your own purposes. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something that's you know, obviously that's been happening forever. But um it seems like this is different somehow because, it's exploded. because why? Well, because why? That's a really good question. I think why I'd say is because it is reinterpreted. You get one image, mm. which is some somehow speaks to all audiences. You know, okay. it, there's something about it that's captivating. And then one person... Like B-movie? Like the B-movie, which I have problems <laughs> with and I will rant it's about. such a, a bad future. movie. It's I think that's the point. It's a sexist text. Anyway, right, 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 right. we'll get on to okay, that. Okay. We're <laughs> talking... Promise. That's an um, animated film by... We're talking the animated film Seinfeld. which <laughs> uses... Uh, male bees as their chief protagonists, and oh. then gives them only four legs, um, despite bees having six. It's it's just there's so many everything's wrong. Okay, we'll, okay, we'll okay. talk about that. Sorry, yeah. But meme culture, you take one image that's relatable to a lot of audiences, and then it gets remixed over and over and over again. Mm. And different people have the different interpretations of it, and mm. it's open to anyone who can put text over a picture. You know, especially within these memes that I'm talking about, mm. um, which is like. So ridiculously easy. So it's so accessible, mm-hmm. and it's so you know the, because you have the constant reinterpretations, they mm. can be funny over and over and over again. Um, but you mentioned yeah. they take pain. They take pain. Oh, and and turn it into something. But it mm. also creates pain in some instances. Meme culture, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, yes. Some of yeah. Some, you get hateful memes. But I will end on the fact that um, I went out in graduation last year, mm. and last year the best thing about my dress up day, mock up day, was the fact that plastered all over our school was homegrown memes. So they made a <laughs> meme out of our school and stuck up all these uh. pictures of teachers, and, and they were all lovely. Oh, but they were hilarious, cute. and it was the two girls behind it were like bang on. Bang on with the attitudes, yeah. Fantastic. So Mean culture gets stuck into it. They can be a really good, powerful tool. Oh, more, more so than, yeah, th- than the other side of yes. it. Like it's, all we ever get is something that makes you mm. feel, you know, uh, positive yeah. for most mm. memes. Yeah. It's just the peanuts who are on the other end yeah. who do the bad things. Anyway. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Wednesday Breakfast. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm 
on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. This is East Bay Ray from Dead Kennedys. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Have an orgasm for Christ. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net. A 3CR supporter. This is Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. From the 1st of July, federal and state governments have enacted the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement. The agreement replaces the 10-year National Affordable Housing Agreement, which comprised two separately funded initiatives for affordable housing and for homelessness services. To give us an independent view on the new agreement, we're speaking to the Manager of Client Services at Housing for the Aged Action Group, April Bragg. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thanks and for thanks joining for us. And thanks for having us on the program, Will. Wonderful. Uh, so, first of all, just, just to clear up, um, Housing for the Aged Action Group, can I say HAG or H-A-A-G? Um, <laughs> Something I should have cleared great, up earlier. Great division in the organisation. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I call it HAG and most of HAG. Um, my colleagues do. Okay, sure. Um, but we do have some members calling it HAG or oh. um, <laughs> a whole range of things, depending sure, on how sure. you want to put the posh spin on it. Okay, okay. Well, we'll say that you're here yeah, with HAG today. HAG. And um, so, we, we, like I said earlier, we are, we are talking about the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement. Can can we get your first uh, reaction to the agreement? What changes, if any, does the new agreement represent? Um, well, I said we're still working through it. Mm. Um, earlier in the year, we gave evidence at a Senate inquiry about the bill that was to go up that formed the um, the agreement. And um, I, I mean, there are some things that we welcome on it, but overall, we're really concerned about um, the Commonwealth continuing to abrogate its responsibility for housing um, its citizens and um, putting um, a lot of that responsibility on the states. So the things that we did welcome were that it is outcome-focused because the federal government recognises that billions and billions and billions of dollars have have gone into um, housing and homelessness support. Probably over the last couple of decades, that's been more about supporting homelessness, so supporting people in their homelessness rather than getting them a housing outcome. And we've certainly seen that the federal government hasn't um, provided funds for capital work, so to put housing on the ground, which has always been Hag's position about um, (laughs) it's not rocket science. If you want to end homelessness, um, it is about um, having properties to, mm. to, for people to, to live in and make homes out of. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> it's, it's such sort of simple, yeah. simple yep. sort of formula. If you want people to live in a house, they've got to have a house. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So with this agreement, the states are supposed to put targets um, mm. together about how many properties that they'll be um, providing um, how many, you know, how, how many dollars in um, homelessness support and what that will relate to. Um, and as I said, there's, you know, um, while all this money keeps going in, homelessness keeps rising. Um, and 
housing stock that people can access that's affordable, such as public housing, um, has been dwindling as well. Mm. So it's really at crisis time, I, I suppose... Um, you know, we're really glad that housing's on the political gen- agenda again. We haven't mm. seen that really since the 70s and 80s, that housing was all our responsibility. Um, it's been lost. Government strategy is that the private rental market can take care of um, everyone, particularly low-income people, and we know that that's just not the, not the case. Um, so, but... Having said that, um, again, without the Commonwealth Government having a housing strategy, and we think it's a bit rich that they're saying to all the states and ter- territories, you must have a yeah. housing strategy, but we're going to be doing nothing. That's a big part of this, yeah. um, this new agreement, is that the, um, the states are required to be more accountable for the amount yeah. of money that they spend, and they've got, they're going to be reporting back to the federal government um, the amount of money they're spending. And so that's, that's a shift of emphasis over as to who's responsible. Yep. And a really good emphasis on not just what you're, what you're spending, but Mm. how you're spending it and what are the outcomes. It has to be outcomes driven. And we really welcome that. Okay. And, and again, linking that back to, of course, housing outcomes for Mm. people. So, Mm. um, you know, how are you housing them? Where are you housing them? What are you building? And, and again, that has to be about building targets. Sure. So we've already seen a pro and a con from, from housing advocates. Um, in that um, there's a shift towards outcomes, um, yeah. outcomes-based sort of thinking, but at the same time, shifting responsibility away from the federal government is less than desirable. Um, what in this do you see for older, um, older people who are either under housing stress or homeless? Um, well, again, we're calling on all governments um, to have a housing strategy that has a sub-strategy that involves older people. Mm-hmm. And we're saying for older people that we're really now at crisis time. It's the largest um, group of um, people that are becoming homeless. There was over a 50% increase in that demographic um, in the last 12 months, in the mm-hmm. last census, and particularly for older women. Um, so for older people, also it just isn't, um, we need a coordinated approach against all um, government programs, and that includes health and aged care as well, because it's not just about housing people, but it's about the supports that older people um, particularly need to remain living in their housing. And, and I know, um, I think uh, around January, you had your rough sleeping strategy that you announced, and we had a chat to, I had a chat to Fiona York yeah. earlier in the year, um, in May, and you know, she was talking about the fact that the state government was leaving um, people without housing hope after the announcement of the federal budget. And so now we've got the Victorian state elections coming up. What, has anything changed? I mean, you just sort of mentioned that they have to report back to the federal government yeah. that they're spending. Since the launch of your strategy, and I guess over the last, let's say, six months, are you seeing any changes towards... No, speci- yeah, no specific commitments to, to older people mm-hmm. and how that um, increase in um, older people either sleeping rough or, but we, we particularly know with that group of people that they're the hidden homeless yeah. um, and particularly women and they're the ones presenting at our, our service. We're not a crisis housing service but everyday people front up thinking that we can provide um, some form of emergency housing straight away. Um, let alone long-term housing. Um, and, and again, there's a lot of preventative um, strategies that um, need to go into policy direction about, um, particularly for the group we're working with, because traditionally they haven't accessed um, homelessness services, would never think about it. And sometimes mm. they don't even actually realise that, um, they that they're actually homeless mm. um, or that they oh. exist. 
Um, so there needs to be specific, um, particularly information strategies, and it's one of the things that our Home at Last service um, particularly concentrated on about how you get information out to people about starting to plan for their housing future and also making them aware, particularly if you're still hanging on in private rental and there are very few older people that are because access to private rental for older people is just about yeah. impossible now. Um, but if you are, um, that you are only 60 days away um, from homelessness if you get a notice to, to vacate and that's likely mm. to happen and the likelihood of you being able to access private rental again is, is virtually zero. Just can't compete with... And the welfare reform package then, what role is, I mean, I know that that's got to do with the homelessness. What has yep. been happening with that side of it? Because that was meant to help alleviate those types of things. Yeah, very little seen on, on the ground in, in practicalities, I, I guess, is all I can say and what we mm. see every yeah. day. And I, I just uh, um, an example that I can give you about how the homelessness system doesn't, doesn't work for people. Um, I was contacted on the weekend about... Um, some women and children who were sleeping in cars outside a motel in, in the car park of a motel in Sunshine. And they had been supported by their local um, homelessness service to actually stay at that motel um, a few weeks back. But the funding that's available to people is only for the period of time until their pension, and you need to be Centrelink eligible, basically, mm. um, until their next payment comes in. So for these women... They'd already received assistance and that had run out. The motel owner, of course, said, you need to leave. Even though I just think it's the most ridiculous thing that those those rooms um, ha- have oh, been vacant. Yeah. There's, you know, it's not that they're inundated with um, tourists in, um, in, <laughs> in Sunshine. The <laughs> arts centre Ballarat Road in Sunshine, I can tell you. Um, but the motel owner was so concerned about particularly the children that said, um, I think you should park in the car park because that way you've got access to the toilets in the laundry block and, you know, might be a bit safer than being some, somewhere else. And, you know, that's, and the children haven't been able to go to school, haven't been able to, to be enrolled because they're, you know, um, you're having to move from place to place. And so for, you know, us just entrenching that disadvantage, particularly for, for children, um, and other vulnerable groups, that, as we're saying, older people is disgraceful. Mm. Sorry, you mentioned uh, the statistic of 50% rise. I was just wondering, have, do we have any like um, uh, data showing us what's caused this rise in homelessness? Is it housing affordability alone? or? Well, yes, and that 50% rise, particularly with older women. Mm. So traditionally looking at the older women in the workforce um, who never had superannuation um, access were generally in low, low, these women that are presenting in lower-paid jobs. Um, you know, putting um, roofs over the heads of their kids and food on the table and having successfully raised children, but now um, just reliant on, on age pension mm. a- alone, mm. and that's it. Right. And, and, and living yep. in general yep. has become expensive. Oh, mm. I, I mean, every day we're actually seeing people that are actually losing their um, housing because of their energy bills. Yeah. Um, so mm. making that choice, and often yeah. when they become sick... Um, you know, you actually have to, you know, particularly in, in winter, have, have heating. So people needing to make those choices. We're seeing more and more older people who, for the first time in their lives, this is their first time experience of homelessness. Yeah. And that's, you can see that the market, that's purely about sort of market forces that's, that's forcing that. Um, but also saying to us that they're relying on food services. So for the first time ever, um, and some of these are children of the Depression, saying even in those times... Um, 
you know, where their families might have been self-sufficient in, you know, with communal gardens and more community coming together. Um, they're very, you know, isolated and having to, you know, rely on those avenues for food. And okay. many go without medication as, as well. Mm-hmm. So the practical stuff about the welfare reforms, the um, partnership um, agreement on, on housing, is that really making a difference on the ground? We're not seeing it, and that's why we're saying this needs to um, not be politicised. The other issue is that, yes, this is a, about the third agreement um, within the, in the um, decade or just over. Often change of governments, they throw out the, the plan. Yeah. So it's subject to all that. We're, we're saying, and we've been <laughs> saying this for about 30 years, this is a crisis and this, we really are at crisis point. Mm. For all demographics, um, our young people we're really concerned about, of course, you know, long-term future for them in housing. Um, we can't see it. Um, and then also their income security into the future. Very doubtful that there would be, you know, age pension by that time. So we really need a... Again, saying a national plan on how we're actually going to house people. Mm. And there are some immediate cohorts in that that are are really in trouble now. Mm. Now, if people want to find out more about the work that HAG does, how can we find you? Yep, so if people got a pen, our phone number is 96547389, but also on the the web just um, uh, type in Housing for the Age Action Group. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of... um, sort of activities and particularly leading up to the um, state election mm. as well. And one, t- one more time, that phone number is 96547389. But we'd also say, apart from getting involved in HAG, this to people really need to be getting in touch with their members of parliament. Mm. Um, it, it is making a difference because, as I said before, housing was never on the um, political agenda. Mm. It is such a big issue now. Um, I don't think politicians go anywhere without it being raised, mm. but we need them to take the next step of actually, you know, putting housing in place policy paper and yeah. everything has a flow and effect too doesn't it yep, like we absolutely. woke up this morning hearing that stressed doctors are now quitting the aged care sector in droves yes, and yes. not going to nursing homes anymore yes so yes. you know everything starts oh, somewhere and don't even start to, yeah. on residential <laughs> care and that's, and that's the thing about an older person's housing strategy and needing to link it up with all services that government provide because if you're actually housing people and enabling them to live independently it means that they're not having early admission into residential care, um, which a lot of people that we've seen um, might have a health crisis, end up in residential care, become well, but there's nowhere to exit back out to, um, which is just tragic as well, to think that you would live out your time in a nursing home when you could actually be living independently in your community. Well, thank you so much for coming on 3CR Breakfast today. We've been speaking to the Manager of Client Services at Housing for the Aged Action Group, April Bragg. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesday Breakfast. G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the Writer Director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. Panoply, Panorama... Panpipe? Pansy? Aha! Pansexual! Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR, 855am digital and 3cr.org.au.
Wednesday breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we're going to be hearing about Israel's recently passed nation-state law. And um, to tell us more about that, we have Jan Bartlett speaking to... Speaking to NASA from uh, Palestine Remembered on Saturdays. Last week, the most right-wing and religiously governed coalition in Israel's 70-year history enacted a law that enshrines the right of national self-determination as, quote, unique to the Jewish people, unquote, not all citizens. The legislation, a basic law, gives it the weight of a constitutional amendment but it is argued that it is what it doesn't mention, which is the telling point. I'm speaking with Nasser Mashni, co-founder of Australian for Palestine and Olive Kids and treasurer of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and also co-presenter of Palestine Remembered here on 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Nessa, can you first elaborate on what this basic law says and what it means? Last week, Israel passed a nation-state law, and Israel doesn't have a democracy, rather a set of principles under which it's governed. And ultimately, what this law, in fact, declares that Jews are the only people that have the right to self-determination within Israel. Remembering that Israel doesn't have a defined border, it um, currently occupies East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza and the Golan Heights through Syria. The legislation stipulates Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people and they have an exclusive right to national self-determination in it. And also as another, uh, another part of the legislation, currently or before last week, Arabic was an official language of the State of Israel where, you know, somewhere between one in four and one in five people speak that language. That language has been stripped of official language. Hebrew is now the only official language and it's been downgraded to special status. So look, one of the things that, you know, as an activist, as, a, as a, an Australian of Palestinian ancestry, diaspora, refugee Palestinian, what this law does is takes the mask off the, the pretense of Jewish democracy. This is the reality of Palestinians' existence within all of historic Palestine. Now what we have is it enshrined in law. What this means now is that uh, uh, an indigenous population now is paying taxes to a government institution that has a legal and uh, like a constitutional obligation to downgrade those taxpayers to second-class citizens. And whilst we've always known that this was the Zionist enterprise, it really exposes Malcolm Turnbull and the Australian government when they say Israel and Australia are shared democracies. We are shared settler colonialist regimes who have taken the land off indigenous people. Israel now has gone one step further than Australia, which took the land off our indigenous people without treaty or sovereignty, and now has legislated that the indigenous people are second classes. It's claimed that this law is a betrayal of the 1948 Declaration of Independence. Can you explain why? Arguably, the Declaration of Independence in 1948, the language within that, like I presume most founding documents of countries, is quite open and talks about everybody within the country having equal rights 
etc. The cold hard reality as we know in 1947 through to 1949 that the terrorist gangs of Irgun, Stern, Haganah commenced and then uh, the Israeli Defence Force after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 continued with the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and whilst the principles in the founding document of the State of Israel might have been moral if you will the reality is the state has never truly lived by the morals of that founding document in that in excess of 95% of the land of the State of Israel is reserved in into perpetuity for the exclusive use of the Jewish people worldwide the 60-plus Israeli laws that mean that uh, Palestinians are subjected to uh, second-class citizens. Uh, and, and a couple of those very, very quickly, Jan. If I was to marry a Palestinian-Israeli woman uh, and we wanted to live together within the State of Israel, I can't get citizenship. So if she's a citizen, our children would be citizens if they were born there, but if they were born outside of there, that would be up for, for debate. But any Jew anywhere in, uh, on earth can actually at any time go and claim Aliyah and return to the State of Israel. This is precluded to me, though my grandfather was buried within uh, historic Palestine and, you know, my father is now buried here in Australia, his adopted homeland. We don't have the opportunity, if I wanted to visit my grandfather or grandmother's grave or the house where my um, father was born, I have to ask an Israeli for their permission to allow me in. So, it's never been a democracy. It's certainly a democracy for the Ashkenazi Jew, but um, the levels of diminishing democracy change as you work through from, um, you know, a Jew from a European Jew, an Arab Jew, an African Jew, uh, and then an Arab, whether you be Christian, Bedouin, or uh, Muslim. Now, you're saying that Israel doesn't have any proper borders. How then can it institute a law like this, or indeed any law? Well, look, it, it continues to do so with the, the full support militarily, economically and diplomatically from the United States and, and many Western uh, governments. Increasingly, though, we're seeing that being challenged. As, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Senate in Ireland passed a boycott resolution. I, I think the, pop, the, the world's population is starting to wake up to crime that Zionist Israel is perpetuating. And, and the biggest challenge, the challenge we have, if we go back to the original sin of the, the Balfour Declaration in Science Pico, is that uh, one people promised another people somebody else's land. And the concept of Zionism and where it exists today is that the Zionists want all of the land of historic Palestine and they want it to be a democracy. Well, the reality today in those borders is that 50% of the population is not Jewish. So you could, you're a land and you're democracy, but you, you're not Jewish. Well, or they can be Jewish and have the land, but you're not democratic, and that's today. Or you can be democratic and Jewish, but you can't have all the land. And the conundrum that faces Zionism is it wants all three. And so there's a really famous line that, Zionism wants as much Palestinian geography as possible with as little Palestinian demography. What does it mean for the Palestinian people, that Hebrew? Hebrew is the official language. Most Palestinian Israelis speak Hebrew. For many years it's probably as strong, perhaps a little bit stronger than their Arabic and English is their third language. It doesn't actually mean anything in the sense of moving forward today in their day-to-day -day lives within Israel. 
What it actually means, though, is that it's a stamp that you're not one of us. We've always known that we're not one of us and that we're an other, but as we've seen the rise of racist attacks within the United States as President Trump continues his equivocation with respect to, um, well, I'd, I'd call it morality, but anyway, the move of the far right within the Israeli Knesset, and every Knesset's been right-wing. When they talk about a left and a right, the left is right, and the right is very far right, and this government that Benjamin Netanyahu leads today has some really awful characters within it. The conversation that occurs now within Israeli homes is really derogatory in the sense of othering, you know, a significant minority and an indigenous minority within that land. And it's got to be remembered that those Palestinians within historic Palestine, they didn't go to Israel. Israel came to them. Often that's forgotten. One part of this law says it promotes, or people believe that it promotes the development of Jewish communities and discriminates on land allocation policy. Surely that's already happening. Uh, absolutely, Jan. Uh, so since 1948, there hasn't been a Palestinian town or village, a uh, new Palestinian town or village. There's been some new communities for some Bedouin tribes as they've um, taken over ancestral Bedouin lands. But after the 48 ethnic cleanse in Nakba, some 450 Palestinian villages were erased. Today, Palestinians, if they endeavour to buy homes within new settlements, they are um, met by entrance committees, and those entrance committees are tasked with the responsibility of ensuring that applicants meet the, uh, you know, a standard test and what it actually is, and uh, is making sure that they're Jewish. There was a, an undercover report done a couple of years ago where, you know, Palestinian Israelis who speak perfect Hebrew and were, you know, secular looking in the fact that the woman wasn't wearing a hijab made applications to and were accepted to um, rent or buy properties within new communities. And when it was found out that they were in fact Arabs, that the couple were not Jewish, that approval was quickly rescinded. There was a clause that was past the first two readings of this law but didn't make it through the third reading and now into legislation was in fact promoting a Jewish settlement, Jewish only settlement, excuse me. And the words that actually made it through to the um, law was that the, the state views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value and will act to encourage and promote its establishment. In, in, in the previous reading, it was very clear that this is what we're going to do. That's a, you know, a little bit more vaguely worded, but still says clearly that we're going to build communities for Jews only. ECR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio uh, Wednesday Breakfast, and uh, we're going to go straight back into that interview that Jan Bartlett did with uh, Nasa Mashni of Australia-Palestine Activist Advocacy Network, and also host of Palestine Remembered Saturdays at 9.30. But uh, take it away, Jan. This law wasn't passed by many votes, was it? There was a very small... The gap between yes and no was very small. Is that right? I think it ended up being 65-55 with two two abstentions. Well, that's only five or six people who could have gone the other way, isn't it? Correct, yeah, yeah. So when you take out the joint list, the Arab parties who hold some in around 20 seats, there were others who um, Jewish members of, of the Knesset who didn't agree with it, with the law as it was. Look at the reaction overseas. You said that slowly but surely people are waking up to Zionist propaganda. Have you seen anything in the last few days from particularly North America where there is a lot of um, agitation? I've seen nothing from North America yet. There was a, like a, a statement from the EU, but it wasn't really uh, you know, as strong as we'd like it to be. Jen, one, one of the things that we measure the success of our struggle is the solidarity we get from people around the world. And certainly when we look at the conversations that are being had from, you know what, previously were lay communities with respect to to Palestine. Those conversations are changing in the West. There are many people, you know, uh, baby boomers who bought into the Zionist kibbutz, Paul Newman, Exodus movie, uh, inspirational, make the desert bloom land without a people for a people without a land, propaganda and Hasbro. The reality is those people are waking up. And certainly amongst the youth, uh, significant changes with respect to the struggle for Palestinian self-determination, and increasingly so amongst Jews in the West, young Jews, uh, under 30s and, and under 25s. Israel runs these birthright programs where, you know, hardcore right-wing Zionist supporters will pay for children of Jewish people to perform aliyah to return to, uh, to Israel. And we've had, I think, on the weekend, another eight kids walk off one of these birthright tours saying, the map you're showing me doesn't show the West Bank. And the tour operator saying, well, we don't think there's a West Bank, it's all of Israel. And, you know, when are we going to meet some Palestinians? Well, you've come on an Israeli tour, why would you meet Palestinians? And there's a real questioning amongst the youth of Judaism as to whether or not Israel represents them. And as we know, you know, Judaism is a religion and a, and a beautiful Abrahamic faith. And, and certainly Zionism is not representative of Judaism. And, of course, the fact that while this law is being passed, the, the bombs are raining down on Gaza. Yeah, so we've exceeded 140 deaths now in what was is a peaceful movement as Palestinians sought their inalienable right, their inalienable right to return to their ancestral homes. And when we consider Gaza, you know, as David Cameron said as Prime Minister of Britain, an open-air prison, two million people, 70% of them are refugees. Many of them can see their ancestral lands at the other side of the fence. Many of them holding title deeds and keys to their, their homes that they were ethnically cleansed from. The state of Israel was entered into the, uh, was allowed to enter the United Nations as a country, if you will. And one of the conditions of its accession to the United Nations was the full application of UN Resolution 194 which says that the Palestinian refugees have a right to return to their homelands 
and those that don't want to need to be contemplated. Israel has been a member of the UN now for 71 years, has yet to allow a single refugee to return home, and now makes statements that there's too many of them, and if they came back, this would be the destruction of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. But the reality is, when there was only half a million of them, 600,000 of them, they didn't let them in then. They were never going to let them back in. Israel was never established to give equal rights to the indigenous peoples that were there as well as the Jews that fled the Holocaust. You're not holding your breath for the, the federal government or even the, the opposition to come out positively on this issue of the law? Look, I hold no hope for Malcolm Turnbull or the Liberal government to do anything vaguely humane. You know, having heard Malcolm Turnbull's comments about Sudanese youth last week, the dog whistle politics that uh, is reminiscent of um, the Howard era is only uh, widening the gap between our um, wonderful country and the multicultural society that we live in. The federal Labor is having their national conference in December. Palestinians and uh, solidarity activists who are in solidarity with the Palestinians are we moving towards asking the Labor the next Labor government to immediately recognise the state of Palestine, as Jeremy Corbyn has committed to as uh, a platform in his Labor government, in a future Jeremy Corbyn Labor government in Britain. We're optimistic that we're not going to get to see change from the top down. This needs to be driven from the bottom up, and increasingly we are seeing support from the bottom. So we're, we're optimistic that um, this colonial settler project stays are limited. Are you aware of how many serving politicians in the Labor Party have been on the Israeli-sponsored tours? Probably look up the numbers uh, and come back to you with respect to that, Jan. But I know recently I, I, I did actually calculate those numbers and we had something of the order of, in the past 10 years, our biggest trading partner politicians in the past sort of, I think it was 8 or 10 years, 60 visits to China. We had 50 visits or 49 visits to the United States. And in the same period, there was 102 visits to Israel. Um, and these are sponsored visits to Israel, business class, you know, helicopters over the Golan and in through to uh, Serdot. Really phenomenal propaganda tours that, you know, all expenses paid. Plenty of work there for APAN. There's plenty of work. We're not going to go out of the Palestine advocacy business soon, I don't imagine, Jan. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't pay anything, but um, what we do have on our side is uh, the truth, a willingness and a, and, a, and a determination to stand with those people and their rights, the indigenous Palestinians and their rights to self-determination. And you know what really amazes Zionists, and they, what, one of the things they can't reconcile is how a um, how a population, when faced with nuclear weapons, the full support of the United States militarily, diplomatically and economically. Nuclear submarines, tanks, F-16s. When that population resorts to flying kites as, a, as an offensive weapon, they can't understand why we haven't given up. What they don't understand is we haven't given up because we're Indigenous. And Indigenous people never give up their rights to their land where their fathers and mothers were buried and where they were born. And it's important too that 3CR has a, a Palestinian program. We've had a Palestinian program here most years since inception, but there were a few years where there wasn't. But there's now a very important program on Saturday mornings at 
Yeah, no, so I, I jointly host that with uh, Yusuf Rinaldi and uh, Robert Martin, Palestine Remembered. So we do sincerely thank 3CR for their continued support of the Palestinian cause, which is in line with its core values and our struggle for Indigenous rights and sovereignty yet treaty within Australia. And thank you so very much for all of your support too, Jan. You're, you're a wonder. Thanks. And that was Jan Bartlett speaking to Nasa Mashni of APAN and Palestine Remembered, um, which is a 3CR show you can catch on uh, Saturdays at 9.30, speaking about the nation-state law um, recently passed by Israel's Knesset, which affords special rights to, um, essentially affords um, a special right to self-determination only to Jewish people mm-hmm. in what they call the land of Israel. Um, so next up, we are going to be hearing um, a couple of community announcements, and then we'll be hearing from uh, Joel as part of the Brainways Mental Health Series Transformative Stories, sharing his story. But now some community announcements. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. We're coming live to you from the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra as part of the Sorry Day Convergence. And here comes Gila. How you going, Gilla? How's it going, Gav? How's it going, uh, all you listeners down Melbourne? And you're missing a great time up here and uh, a great day. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio station, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Call 9419-8377 and subscribe today. I feel hopeful, I feel grateful, I feel sorry. As an Aboriginal person, let me shake your hand. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you very much. No worries. Joel shares his story as part of Brainwave's mental health series, Transformative Stories. Each year, Wellways hosts an annual Bruce Woodcock Memorial Lecture to discuss current mental health issues. This year's theme is Sharing Stories, Changing Lives, with Uncle Jack Charles as the keynote speaker. Uncle Jack is an inspirational and passionate orator who informs and encourages people to examine aspects of their life and society to seek opportunities for transformation and growth. Brainwaves will be running a series of three shows where we will be chatting with a speaker from the Woodcock Lecture on the topic of transformative storytelling. Transformative storytelling is the act of listening to other individuals sharing their experience of mental illness, who may learn how harmful social exclusion and stigma can be. They feel empathy, they might revise their own prejudices and stigma, and they might reflect on their own experience of emotional and experimental ups and downs. For people who have a lived experience of mental illness or of being a supporter, family member or carer, hearing from other people's stories can be a powerful affirmation of their own experiences and can assist them in their own recovery. So Brainwaves would like to welcome Joel to the show who is a mental health peer worker, inspirational speaker, mental health advocate and our first guest for the Transformative Transformative Storytelling Series. Thanks so much Joel for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, So thank you for coming on the show. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the role you play within the mental health community? Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks for having me, guys. Um, so, yeah, um, my name's Joel. Um, basically, um, I am a peer worker 
but the the main thing for me is advocacy. Yeah? Um, mental health is something that I've struggled with pretty much most most of my life, if not all of my life, um, and it's something I hold very close to my heart. So I think all the harder times that I went through um, went for nothing. So um, I like to be able to put it back out in a positive kind of way and be able to tell my story um, I think is a very powerful thing and um, yeah so that's kind of what I do yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you Joel for sharing that um, so it's Suzanne here and um, Joel can you tell us a bit if you wouldn't mind a bit about your own mental health journey? Yeah sure um, so I'm 34 years old. Um, I wasn't diagnosed with um, anything till um, 2005 when I was first placed in a psychiatric unit, um, which was awesome. Not, but <laughs> um, but mental illness was definitely prevalent in my life from an uh, early age, maybe you know before my second digits. Um, always struggled with anxiety, um, kind of paranoid feelings. You know that low flat flat feeling you kind of get with like a feels like there's like a cloud over your head and um that just kind of developed through throughout you know um high school into my 20s and um we all have coping strategies yeah um my coping strategy for a very long time was a negative one it was drugs and um i use copious amounts to try to squash push down all my thoughts and emotions so i didn't want to feel anything i wanted to I just want, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the emotions that were coming into my head, so I tried to squash them and pretend they didn't exist. And I did that for a very long time, till actually 10 years ago. So, um, and that's when my recovery started, and I started to slowly but surely um, get my life back on track. And um, I'm still in recovery. I think it, in some form or way, I will be in recovery in some way. Um, just, um, I guess, there's different. Um, levels to it so I guess like now like um, I need a bit of medication I need some psychotherapy you know I need a, um, a worker a fans worker I need a number of things like that but maybe in say 10 years time I might um, not need medication and I might be able to um, sustain myself um, mentally with just maybe mindfulness and meditation or something like that so I'm always striving to get weller so it's a continuous not so much battle but more of a journey now so yeah but it's interesting <laughs> yeah yeah um have you overcome any social barriers or right violations during your journey and how did you overcome these yeah um look there especially earlier on um when i was first i was first diagnosed with schizophrenia in um as i said 2005 in my first psych unit stay one of many to come and hopefully none more <laughs> um but yeah like from there from there on um quite often I felt very stigmatized you know I was known as you know um like psycho Joel or rehab Joel or you know schizo Joel or all those words you know and that didn't become my identity but to other people that's all I was and that's all I was going to be and that did kind of that did that did it did hurt yeah um but I guess I guess as time goes on I 
a built up resilience, I guess, and not so much looking outwards, but kind of inwards and knowing that the only way I'm going to get through and not just get through, but enjoy this life is to, um, is to look inwards and to go come from the inside, not to kind of, um, go off, um, what other people think or, um, yeah, so. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Joel. Um, how did you go about seeking the right supports and therapies for yourself? Yeah, sure. So as I said, like, um, you know, um, mental illness was prevalent in my life for, you know, for a very long time, maybe eight or nine years old, um, straight up. And, um, I didn't seek any help till, um, 2007. Um, and that's when, when I got clean and that's when my recovery started. So I slowly but surely, um, got back on my feet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, first three years of my recovery was basically spent holed up at my mum's house. Um, you know, blankets up on the window, couldn't talk to anyone because my anxiety was through the roof. My paranoia was through the roof, delusional kind of thinking, um, voices, things like that. Um, and it kind of took, um, I'm a big believer in social inclusion and so, and keeping, keeping socially, Active is a massive thing that's kept me well. So once I kind of started to delve out further out of, outside of that, um, bedroom, outside of that house and started to, you know, talk to doctors, talk to people, get involved with groups and things like that, that's when I started to really, um, start to understand who I was and start to really, really want to get better. That's when my drive got really, really strong. Now, there were a lot of, it was, you heard the word of baby steps a lot, yeah? Um, there's a lot of baby steps and there's lots of ups and downs and there still is, but the thing that mainly sustains me now is, would definitely be my, um, being socially inclusive. So that could be for me as simple as having, like for instance, I have a doctor's appointment on Friday at 2 p.m. Um, this morning I saw my fans worker, Marie, um, if I didn't keep to those appointments, um, as basic as they are, my, um, I would probably stay home and just not exist, just pretend like nothing was going on and I would get worse and worse and worse. My anxiety would get worse, my paranoia would get worse and I would work myself up into a into basically into curling into a bowl in the corner. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so learning to um, look after myself um, and me doing it for me has been a massive learning curve over the years. And it's not like everything is perfect now, but for me right now, it's good. And I continue to strive to get better. So... That's why my recovery is, I kind of think of it like as a, it's like an open-ended book, a book without an end. It's the chapter after chapter. And, but I'm writing the chapters and I've got a bit more, not say control, but I've got more, um, I've got more focus on it myself. It's not just floating around and me kind of randomly grabbing at it. It's me making the decisions and kind of working along, 
working with my mental illness, working with my addictive traits, as opposed to going against them and fighting them and making it all a heap worse. Yeah. Yep. And you're listening to 3CR. That was Joel, who was sharing his story as a part of, to, a part of Brainwave's mental health service, Transformative Series. You can hear Brainwaves every Wednesday from 5pm, giving voice to people with a lived experience of mental illness. Now, Will, um, I'm going to take up the rest of the show with a quick snippet of news that Beautiful. came out last night. Um, it hasn't been across any of the newspapers we have in the room, but this is CEDAW and the UN's uh, annual review of Australia's um, dedication to it. So Australia is a ratified state amongst the 189 states that have ratified the agreement. And I would like to go into detail next week about the difference between signing and ratification, because I mm. think, obviously, we, uh, a lot of the time we don't know the difference. Of CEDAW. What's CEDAW? CEDAW. Thank you so much. The CEDAW is the Convention of Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Mm. So it protects women's rights and promotes further women's rights. Mm. So feminism, basically. Yep. But anyway, the UN has come, come out swinging against Australia. Now, they have, oh. they have said well done for a few things. They've said uh, we've had a reported improvement in marriage equality. Introduction of paid parental leave scheme, the prohibition of discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation, gender identity, intersex status, and family responsibilities. Mm. So we have improved, yes. However, uh, we've also had a list of 90 things to further improve on. So these things include uh, human frames right work, uh, sorry, human rights framework, a bit mm. of a spoonerism for you there. Sure. Um, that's just introducing a charter of rights into Australia to help protect women's rights. Um, also, the epidemic nature towards of violence towards women. So we remember that one in three women experience physical violence and one in five sexual violence. Um, and also the idea of that we still don't have a gender budget. Uh, we've got recent funding cuts to legal assistance services and legal aid for women. We've also had the treatment of, um, they've also noted poor treatment towards diverse groups of women, including Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander women, women of the LGBTQIA community, women with disabilities, old women, refugee women, and women from linguistically diverse backgrounds. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking a little bit more about that because I think this is an ongoing story that we really want to follow because the CEDAW is a really fascinating treaty that a lot of states ratify themselves to and then act under reservations. So they choose to accept some, part, some parts of the treaties and they choose to completely ignore other parts. Um, and, yeah, we'll be talking about the implications of that next week or maybe the week after. But... On the topic of ongoing news, we're actually thinking of introducing a new segment, Will. Ah, that's right. Uh, yes. It's called... Yesterday's News. Yeah. Um, and please, if oh, we'll give you the concept, but if you have any ideas of what this segment, you know, you could contribute to the segment, please mm. do call into us. Basically, session. what we want to do is cover stories that have fallen out of the limelight. Yeah. Um, stories which are ongoing, but haven't had um, media treatment recently. So yeah. one th- that we were kind of floating is the... Um, the lack of access to clean water in Flint, Michigan. Yes. Um, yep. Or we can be um, talking about similar issues happening here in Australia in terms of like um, people experiencing contamination from fracking. What else is there? Yeah, no. So it's all about yeah. the idea of stories which have had their flash and pan of media attention. Mm. We've gone, wow, that's a really important conversation that we're not having. Mm. And then they've disappeared. So it's all yeah. about reawakening, going, hey, yes. where is that one story, that ambiguous story? Where, where has it kind of mm. gone? So another story. Um, thing I want to look into is actually ling- language in the Northern Territory, and they've right. had like some bilingual projects going on for about sure. four years. So we sure. might get some experts to talk about that. But yeah, that's our yesterday's news segment. And yeah, so if there's any stories out there which have gone, hey, where did that kind of go? Yeah. <laughs> that's still occurring. That's still relevant to me, and I want to mm-hmm. hear more. Please do call in on our station or SMS. Uh, on SMS, it's o four double eight nine three o eight five five. That was. O four double eight nine three O eight five five. And our station number is nine four one nine eight three seven seven nine four one nine 
8377. And so this is if you have any ideas for our yesterday's news um, segment and you yep. want to get us to cover a story, um, call in and say that you want to pass on a message to the Wednesday breakfast folks. Yeah, and we'll um, endeavour to cover it. Absolutely. Now, today we've had a great show. We've been speaking to Housing, um, housing Aged Action Group. Housing for the Aids Action Group are talking about um, the state of housing, um, new new funding arrangements. Uh, we also heard about the nation-state law in Israel from uh, Jan Bartlett speaking on Tuesday Home Time yesterday. And then we also heard from um, Joel sharing a story as part of the Brainways Mental Health um, Project. And so um, we hope you enjoyed our show today. Yeah, we certainly did. You've been listening to uh, Wednesday Breakfast, and Wednesday we'll see breakfast. you next week. And we'll see you next week. Have Coming a great up is uh, Stick Together. That's right, folks. Have a great day.